0: All right, we are back, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we had the conversation we just had with Stephen Harper and not the one I was afraid we might have a few weeks ago. I think it's pretty clear that Donald Trump was not kidding when he suggested that what the nation needed was 12 years of him. How he might have accomplished that, who knows, but I'm glad he doesn't have four years to try and figure it out. And we're not the only ones uh, expressing a sigh of relief. Uh, the Europeans had the following to say about election 2020. Writing in The Observer in the UK, Andrew Walmsley said the world will no longer have to twitch over the U.S. president's Twitter feed. When the news broke last week that Joe Biden had defeated Donald Trump in the race for the White House, many Europeans couldn't help but cheer. They were right to celebrate. The past four years have been a disaster for transatlantic relations with President Trump trashing NATO, berating European leaders, and pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, which was painstakingly negotiated by the U.S. and the E.U., the Trump presidency so thoroughly gutted America prestige that liberal democracies lost their faith in U.S. leadership. Few could stomach the thought of a second term. That's why ecstatic European officials were among the first to extend congratulations to the new president-elect, said Peter Smolar in Le Monde. Irish Prime Minister Mikhail Martin invited Biden, who has Irish ancestry, to visit. Chancellor Angela Merkel called the U.S.-German friendship irreplaceable. And Paris Mayor Anne Hidalgo tweeted, "'Welcome back, America.'" Writing in Libération in France, Didier Fassin said, "'It's frankly terrifying that Trump came so close to a second term. If you put aside his ranting, grifting, and pathological narcissism and just look at the politics, you see a brutal form of nationalist populism that is fed by white supremacism and a reliance on big corporations.'" It's about keeping women and blacks down and Muslims and Mexicans out and letting the rich get richer. Yet somehow, the majority of American men, the majority of whites and the majority of Christians, once again supported all this. Europeans now know that the U.S. is just one election away from ultra-right authoritarianism. We'll never be able to look at America the same way. As the economists said before the election, Joe Biden is not a miracle cure for what ails America, but he's a good man who would restore steadiness and civility to the White House. He's equipped to begin the long, difficult task of putting a fractured country back together again. On the other hand, I'm a little bit dismayed to see headlines like the following. The polls, why so wrong again? We hope you caught last week's uh, interview with Greg Pallast. We think it's as good as anything we've ever done on this program. And it certainly explained at great length why it isn't a matter of the polls being wrong so much as the vote count being wrong. And yet, in Salon.com, we have Matthew Roses saying professional pollsters blew it again, noting some polls had Joe Biden up by as many as 10 percentage points nationally, while the final margin will probably be a much slimmer four points. On the state level, pollsters predicted a three to six point Biden victory in Florida and a toss up in Texas. Trump took Florida by three plus and Texas by almost six. Ohio and Iowa were toss-ups and Trump took both by eight plus. Well, we'd like to inform salon.com that there are several reasons for why this might have happened and the pollsters blowing it again doesn't necessarily head our list. This program is trying to reach out to a pollster to come on, someone who lives locally. We're, we're going to keep working on that because we'd like to hear what, what they have to say. Polls work fine. In other countries. It's pretty clear to this correspondent that uh, that the vote count for Joe Biden was probably suppressed to the tune of several million across the nation. That's a topic we've been talking about for 18 years on this program, and I hope we're not talking about it for 18 more. Well, I'm pretty sure we won't be. Mr. Miller says he's not sure he's got 18 months left in him We do hope that uh, there will be continuing education of of people in this country so they don't fall for the kind of nonsense that uh, is being peddled by so many. I had a good friend of mine I have known for uh, four decades, back to when we were kids, explained to me why it is in this country the big concern is that we're going to shut this place down over coronavirus, when that's going to do more harm than, than the virus is doing. The one I can see this is based on talking points being peddled by certain online sources and I guess conservative media outlets. I know it does not seem to be based on facts, statistics, and logic, you know, which might be a good summary of why it is Trump is still pretending that, uh, you know, he he may win this thing. Because that certainly isn't rooted in facts, statistics, and logic. Although, as far as I can tell, it does appear that Kanye West has been able to assess the polling information and admit that he did not win. Apparently, he did take 60,000 votes across the nation. His strongest showing was in Tennessee, where he notched 10,258 votes, 0.3% of the three million cast. West did respond to his defeat by tweeting Kanye 2024. Democrats charged that West's very candidacy was a ploy to siphon Biden votes from blacks and young people. Candidate West did take stances against police brutality, abortion, and certain chemicals in deodorants. He apparently posted a video showing himself voting in Wyoming, Wyoming, where he owns a ranch, but he was actually not on the ballot. West printed his name on the right in space and left all other races blank. You know, for the remainder of this program, I think it'd be nice if we moved away from politics and coronavirus. I'm not sure we can manage it, but let's give it a go. Starting with the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, which we rely on uh, for this program, and which provided a great deal of what you just heard, it was a good week last week for Four Seasons Total Landscaping the location where Donald Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, held that surreal press conference to allege election fraud next to a sex shop, a crematorium, and a jail. Seems appropriate to me. (laughs) Which one? All of the above. (laughs) You got a point. Apparently, the Philadelphia business has quickly marketed a line of T-shirts featuring slogans like Lawn and Order and Make America Rake Again. I want one. I think I do, too. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for the sweet science of boxing, with Mike Tyson confessing that during his heyday as heavyweight champion, he passed drug tests by using the Wizinator, which is a prosthetic penis filled with clean urine. Said Tyson, it was awesome, man. I put my baby's urine in it. Now, uh, to my mind, you, you only say something like that or do something like that if you actually are cheating and using anabolic steroids, but hey, what do I know? Maybe did it for the thrill of deception. And it was an ugly week for Steve Bannon last week who did get banned from Twitter after he called for the heads of Dr. Anthony Fauci and FBI Director Christopher Wray to be placed on pikes at the White House as, quote, a warning to federal bureaucrats You either get with the program or you're gone. Mr. Millen adds that apparently Facebook didn't think that was bad enough to ban him from their platform. Why is that not surprising? And it does turn out that social media did basically produce another election filled with disinformation, in spite of making some vague promises they would clean up their act. Andrew Morris, writing in CNET.com, said despite the lessons of 2016... Social media platforms still had their hands full trying to curb misinformation amid another tight election. Twitter appended warning labels to President Trump's tweets about the alleged misconduct in the vote counts. Facebook took the extraordinary step of shutting down a massive group called Stop the Steal that was spreading false claims and had amassed 340,000 followers in a matter of hours. YouTube also took down multiple videos live streaming fake election results hours before polls closed anywhere. Still, said Morse, election day turned into a full week of conspiracy theories and baseless claims with lies spreading faster than Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube could control them. Stephen Levy, writing in Wired.com, said Trump is clearly social media's biggest headache. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and Twitter's Jack Dorsey decided years ago that the newsworthiness of presidential speech allowed Trump to say hateful things that violate policy. They tried to deal with this by including warnings, which left nobody happy. Unfortunately, Trump will still be newsworthy when he's no longer president, and social media will be stuck with the same problem. Jeffrey Fowler, writing in the Washington Post, said after 2016's debacle, social media companies had years to figure out how to build truth into their business. Instead, they just made up a bunch of rules in the past few months to escape that day's negative news cycle. Real change starts with fixing their engagement-based business models and reducing the audience for liars. We always get a kick out of the use of the term conspiracy theory to try and render anything as cuckoo. Because the truth is, there are a certain number of valid conspiracies taking place out there that we need to be up on. I noted in the week they had a review of a book titled The Last Assassin, The Hunt for the Killers of Julius Caesar. I no sooner saw that, but paused and thought to myself, you know, I I hate all these conspiracy theories about the death of Caesar. I'm pretty sure it was the work of a lone knifer. But I haven't read up on it very thoroughly, so I could be wrong. Actually, since I did bring it up, I might as well give the book a further plug by quoting what what they said about it in the Wall Street Journal, which was that it takes a writer of rare talent to make a 2,000-year-old story feel urgent. But Peter Stothard's new account of the assassination of Caesar places readers in an ancient Roman world that is startlingly real. He tells much of the story from the perspective of Cassius Parmensis, the last of the 18 assassins who were eventually tracked down and killed. But the manhunt for the traitors spanned 14 years and three continents. Sounds like a pretty good read. And in other news about the deaths of a politically related figure, we were surprised, I was surprised to see in The Economist that the death of Robert Fisk did not earn an obituary column. It was written up as a news item. Over the last couple of decades, we did quote from Robert Fisk more than once. Said the economist, Robert Fisk, who died in Dublin on October 30th, age 74, was one of the most influential correspondents in the Middle East since the Second World War. For the past 30-odd years, he wrote mainly for the Independent, the left-of-center British newspaper with dwindling circulation and influence at home, but his reach extended far beyond. His bitter narrative of Arab victimhood, and Western wickedness, particularly American and Israeli, often brilliantly crafted, resonated across the region, and was picked up in newspaper columns, by radio stations, and on campuses across the world, America included. Again and again, Western correspondents in Cairo, Damascus, or Baghdad would listen politely as Fisk aficionados, from diplomats and politicians to taxi drivers and coffeehouse waiters, regaled them with the wisdom of Mr. Fisk's latest diatribe. Some of his scoops were world-beating. In 1982, he was the first to encounter the Palestinian refugee camps in Sabra and Shatila, where more than a thousand people had been massacred by Lebanese militias, as Israeli forces looked the other way. In 1993, in Sudan, he became the first Western journalist to interview Osama bin Laden, penning an article titled, Anti-Soviet Warrior Puts His Army on the Road to Peace. The article notes that he was based most often in Beirut, but Fisk was a consummate operator who rode far and wide from Algeria and Libya through the Balkans and Turkey into the homelands of the Kurds and Afghans. He injected a vivid sense of history into his coverage, showing why so many people in the region felt angry and humiliated. The article notes that his reputation among his peers was less rosy. He was a braggart. As we wrote in a review 10 years ago, said The Economist, Mr. Fisk tries to tell the story of the Middle East, but but he does not flinch from telling the story of Mr. Fisk, noting he was self-righteous, though most recently he'd been excoriated for the leniency of his attitude to Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian dictator. The economist says he treated rumors as fact if it suited his narrative. Correspondents, they note, from a range of worthy outlets and diversity of ideologies had accused him of making stories up, to which they added in his mode of reporting a tall tale colorfully told in the supposed interest of the underdog would often trump the literal truth. This is pretty damning evaluation, and I'm sorry to say that I, I don't know enough to you know, say whether you know, it has merit or not, but I think I should look into this. We also want to note, at least in passing, the loss of the 37-year host of Jeopardy, Alex Trebek. Trebek was, of course, the man with all the answers, because... Dating back to the original version of the show, which aired from 1964 to 1975, producer Merv Griffin, in the wake of all of the quiz show scandals, decided the way around that was to give the answer and let the contestant figure out the question. Trebek's hosted a record-setting 8,200 episodes of Jeopardy. I gotta say, I love the show. Used to like watching it with my folks. We were always shouting out the questions. And I confess that on two occasions, I auditioned for the program. And I did pretty well, both times. But as they pointed out, making the next to last cut did not mean you would make the final cut and get the phone call. And alas, mine never came. Perhaps it is because, as Ms. Rowland points out, I have a face made for radio. I like to think they were afraid I would win too much of their money. There is much speculation on who will try and replace. Alex Trebek as the host of the program. And, Merv Griffin Enterprises, if you're listening, I'm not available. I think I'm going to go with Mr. Villain's choice on this one. He thinks that'll be Bill Shatner. Today's categories are, you know, Barack Obama wouldn't be bad. Hi, everybody. How y'all doing? As you know, this is Jeopardy. Anyway, Alex, you did a great job. May the show live long and prosper. And we generally try to rely upon the Week, the Economist, and New Scientist uh, for every program, at least in part. Although the New Yorker sometimes comes through, as over the years has done the Atlantic, Esquire, and Vanity Fair. But as I look down on the current issue of New Scientist, I'm startled by a, a satellite photo they have of a large iceberg. Well, I mean, like a really large iceberg. In fact, this iceberg is the size of the island of Cyprus. It's 100 miles long and 30 miles wide. That's that's much bigger than Catalina Island. And it's floating out in the South Atlantic headed for South Georgia Island. In fact, in the satellite photo, it looks even bigger than the rather substantial South Georgia Island. Scientists note that it could arrive at South Georgia within a month, potentially blocking access to offshore breeding grounds of the island's various penguins, as well as the fur, leopard, and elephant seals. I know, you know, large icebergs do do tend to break off from time to time in Antarctica, but I just wonder if this isn't the sign of future bad things to come. Our normal programming has certainly been co-opted for the past many months. Uh, We would have normally commented on this some months back, which in this case is the fact that Rolling Stone decided to rethink the best albums in the history of pop music. Rolling Stone had done this before, of course. And wouldn't you know it, dropped from the top spot on the previous list of Pop's 100 Greatest Albums, the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which fell to number 24, was the former number six choice on the list, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Yeah, Rolling Stone now puts it at number one, but here's the part that really gets me. Number two, Pet Sounds, The Beach Boys. A couple years back, we, we bagged on Pet Sounds, Always sounded like number two to me. I know what you mean. Yeah, Wouldn't It Be Nice, very good song. Sloop John B., excellent song. God Only Knows, classic song. And filler. Anyway, in case you're interested, the rest of the list is Joni Mitchell's Blue at number three, Stevie Wonder Songs in the Key of Life at number four. Beatles fans will be cheered by the fact that Abbey Road has now moved up to number five. Followed by Nirvana, Nevermind at six, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors at seven, Prince and the Revolution, Purple Rain at eight, Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks at nine, and coming in at the number ten spot, The Monkees, Hey Hey, We're the Monkees. I'm kidding. Number ten spot was Lauren Hill's The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. There is a Latin dictum we like to cite from time to time: "De gustibus non est disputandum," meaning how much you like something isn't really a matter of dispute. But of course, what do we love to fight about? Pet sounds at number two, an outrage! All right, we have time for maybe two more items on this program, so let's go fully eclectic. From last week's issue of New Scientist, we have this report that viruses have now been shown to produce energy on their own for the first time. Notes the piece, a few giant viruses appear to generate their own energy, which viruses aren't supposed to be able to do. The finding will fuel an already fierce debate about whether giant viruses really are viruses and if they're alive or not. The article quotes Bernard Lascola at Aix-Marseille University in France saying, it's really incredible to have energy in a virus. Why any virus needs to produce its own energy remains a mystery. Up until 2003, all known viruses consisted of nothing more than DNA or RNA wrapped in a protein coat or membrane. They have no working machinery inside them. They're relying upon the cells they infect to copy themselves. Under many definitions of life, they aren't alive. But in 2003, La Scala reported the discovery of the first giant virus called Mimivirus. Since then, hundreds of more giant viruses have been discovered and the division between viruses and living cells has become blurred. Some giant viruses are bigger than some bacterial cells. Some have large genomes with lots of genes. They have some machinery to copy DNA and RNA on their own, which is unusual for viruses. They can get attacked by smaller viruses and have a kind of immune system. 20 years after the discovery of the Mimi virus, all the definitions of a virus are no longer true, says La Scala. He and colleagues have now found some giant viruses called Pandora viruses generate a membrane potential across an electrical gradient. It takes energy to generate a membrane potential, and since these are present in isolated viruses as well as those as inside cells, the energy must come from the virus itself, says La Scala. Why they have a membrane potential is still unclear. In most cells, these drive the production of a molecule called ATP, but the viruses don't make ATP. The researchers also found a virus that has many genes that code for enzymes resembling those needed to generate energy. LaScala thinks that giant viruses should be regarded as a group separate from both normal viruses and from prokaryote organisms with simple cells. Wow. And the more they look, the more giant viruses they're turning out around the world. They're apparently pretty widespread, which suggests they have a huge impact on the planet. Said one researcher, it does not matter whether they're alive or not, they're out there and they're doing all these important things. Now let's close an article I've been hanging on to since last August. Its title was The Case Against American Truck Bloat. And I can't resist quoting from the piece by Ranker, who noted, when I was growing up in rural Colorado, my family had a classic work truck, a 1980 F-150 with a famous 300 cubic incline six-cylinder engine. It was often my task to fetch a load of sand for mixing concrete, or landscaping soil, or lumber for some project. It was a great truck. To which he noted, that sort of truck is hard to come by in the consumer market these days. Trucks have gotten bigger, taller, gotten larger blind spots, and have become much more powerful, luxurious, and expensive. Almost nobody makes small pickups anymore like the 1986 Toyota Hilux that I drove in college. The Toyota Tacoma, which used to be in that segment, is now almost as big as my old F-150. This behemoth design trend, particularly in the very tall square front end seen in so many SUVs and trucks today, is both pointless and dangerous. Manufacturers have known for years this style of vehicle is much more dangerous to pedestrians and cyclists, yet they keep making them bigger, taller, and heavier. Trucks and SUVs now make up fully 70% of all new cars sold in the U.S. Their bloated design is killing people, especially pedestrians. The piece goes on to say does seem rather far fetched to think that automakers are consciously building their biggest trucks to be more dangerous to pedestrians, but that is actually the case. He goes on to cite an increase of 53% in pedestrian fatalities from 2009 to 2018. The U.S. has a figure of 19 pedestrian deaths per 1 million population. By contrast, France and Denmark had a rates of 7 and 5 that year especially remarkable because walking around Paris and Copenhagen is far more common than it is in most American cities. And when you know, it turns out that the uh, the massive hood sticking out in front of the driver with a cliff face front grille is a marketing gimmick. While no one sat down to figure out how it is we can kill as many pedestrians as possible, the design they favored is doing exactly that. Now, I don't know what we can do about this as long as people are buying these big behemoths, uh, manufacturers are going to keep pushing them, especially since they make more money with them. I'm just glad I still have my dad's old 1986 Chevy S10, an inappropriately sized truck. I intend to hang on to it. That about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks again to Stephen J. Harper of Northwestern University. We hope he'll return and visit us next year. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. And since we bagged on Pet Sounds in Mr. McMillan, let, let's, let's cut him a little slack. we come on this loop john b my grandfather and me